Morning, church. You know, I'm tempted to uh, not mention that I'm a little lacking technology uh, today, is that I don't have my presenter. So Gilbert's gonna help me, which means you may see the text that I'm reading and you may not, and it's not Gilbert's fault, okay? It's my fault, so nobody blame Gilbert, all right? But um, I just wanted to mention, I just thought how, just how cool it was that Mike was telling us about Sienna and she walked in. I, has anybody felt that that was, I mean, just the coolest thing today? I mean, when we go home, that's what we're gonna remember. The question I have for Sienna is looking at the picture from before, where do you put your hands now? Because every picture that I've seen of you and every time that you've shown up, you have your hands resting right here, you know? Where are you gonna hold them now? And your first Mother's Day is tomorrow? Wow. Three weeks in and she gets celebrated Mother's Day. How about that? The one thing that I didn't realize in studying through Hebrews was that it would prevent my, it would present a problem for my preaching style. My preaching style is uh, what they would call inductive. I like inductive. I like looking at the preaching portion and then coming to the conclusion based on what we've studied, amen? There is deductive where you can put the conclusion up front and then go back to the scripture and study and lead up to it. It's not the way that I usually do it, but what I, rem what I realized was that in, my, in all my past other studies, what I've really used Hebrews for was that conclusion. I used it for that grand conclusion. It's, uh, uh, the New Testament writers sometimes have a tendency to have a hymn, you know, to be able to press. So when you're reading in Ephesians about these, these beautiful conclusions that it comes to about Christ, and, and it's usually a, a, a hymn, that's why it sounds so, so poetic. So Hebrews was usually the ones that I used to be my hymn that would, that would put the cap on it, you know, that would lead up and put the cap on it. So now I, I'm, I'm starting at the end and I'm not sure how much farther I can go beyond what Hebrews is telling us. Yeah, I know, poor me, yeah. That's my problem, right, what's going on today. But I mean, uh, even where, I, where we got the title, where I got the title for the series was, you know, um, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is three verses in. The author of Hebrews is not inductive. He is deductive. He starts off with what we should know and then moves on from there. So, last week, take a look at this. This is what we were told the main point was. Gilbert, let's take a look here. The main point, as what has been said, is such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So last week, the main point was, was that we have such a what? We have this perfect high priest. We have this high priest who's completely unlike the high priest that we were used to on earth in the earthly sanctuary. 
As compared to the earthly priest and the earthly tabernacle, the main point is this guy, this one, is the high priest. Ministers not in the tabernacle on earth made with man's hands, but where? In heaven, not made by man's hands. The sanctuary himself. I'm gonna begin to refer to the sanctuary in heaven as himself because that's who he is. That's what the earthly sanctuary was supposed to represent. It was to represent his ministry, his sacrificial ministry, his interceding ministry. And then you'll look today in chapter nine, a purification or cleansing ministry, if you will. So chapter nine begins with a primer again, a reminder again of the sanctuary. It's the kind of review that indicates that the author's audience would be well-schooled in. He's, he's going through it fast and he's wrapping it up. But he concerns himself this time with not in the outer court, not in the, uh, uh, the court where the altar is, but the next two. And the next two were actually tents. They were two separate tents. They were uh, one whole tent and then two tents within that whole tent divided by a veil. So we were referred to the first one as the holy and the second one we always called what? The holy of holies or the most holy. Okay? And you'll see some translations that will even translate it as the first tent and the second tent. So depending on where we're at, that's, that's what he's talking about. He wants to talk about what happens in those two places. So verse six says in chapter nine, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer or the first and performing the divine worship. So the priests are constantly going in. In fact, they have to go in every day because of what's inside there. What's inside there is the menorah, the only source of light in the temple, by the way, the, the, the seven branch candlestick, the menorah, and the showbread, and the altar of incense. You had to have a priest go in there every day to trim the lamps in the menorah and to put the incense out on the altar of incense. So that's why he's saying that you had to have a priest go in there daily. But again, what was the main point last week? The main point was what the high priest does and only the high priest does. Look at verse seven here. But into the second, only the high priest enters how often? Once a year and not without what? Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Remember what we learned about the sanctuary so far was that you were able to take your, your sin, you were able to come and ask forgiveness for your sin by presenting a sacrifice. The blood of that sacrifice that you brought was then splashed up to the side of the altar, remember, which means your sin was then transferred to the sanctuary itself. The sanctuary, you should just look upon as just one big dumpster. Big old dumpster full of sins, and then sometime around September or October of the following year, the high priest goes all the way in and cleanses the sanctuary of all of Israel's sins, and they start every new year off clean. So he said the main point is this, that this is what our high priest has done for us. So then he takes this interesting tack and he shows that how the first holy place falls short because it's lacking into the most holy, 
In other words, what he's saying is, well, look at, look at verse eight about what, what he's about to say here. Take a look at verse eight, but it says, but th this is the Holy Spirit that indicates that the way into the sanctuary has not been disclosed as the first tent is still standing. In other words, the ministry that's happening in the holy place really doesn't find a way into the veil, uh, beyond the veil, into the most holy place. I'm sorry, I said, <laughs> what happens in the first is keeping actually what should happen in the second because it's still standing. And he's showing that the, the, the ministry in the first place, it, it, it falls short, it doesn't make any sense. Why? Because it doesn't allow passage, literally. It's in the way of the high priest going in to the most holy place, is what he's saying. It's in the way. See, the first one, again, it has the menorah, and it has bread and wine, and, t and the table, and the things, and it deals with certain types of offerings. Take a look at verse 10, what it says here. It says, but, but they deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. So food and drink and various washings, they're all regulations, but they're regulations for our body as long as that first tent is standing. And that's not what this high priest is concerned with. They have connections, but they're only good for something. And what are they good for? I'll go back to verse nine, take a look at this. It says, this is the symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot, what? cannot perfect the what? The conscience of the worshiper. In other words, the ministry has to do with physical things and has to do with our bodies. Why? Because there's bread in there. There's wine in there. There's, there's washings that are available in there. All for these bodies on this planet for that first sanctuary, if you will. And it can do things. It was there for its purpose. It was there for its time. It was there for the bodies of the worshipers at that time. But one thing that it couldn't do, what couldn't it do? It couldn't cleanse the what? Conscience. It's interesting that the Bible has a concept of conscience. And I don't know which to point at when I indicate conscience. You know, I preach with my hands. Is it heart? Is it head? Conscience. What is our conscience? Why should it be clear, if you will? Why should it be cleansed, if you will, or made perfect? However it's made perfect, it said that the first sanctuary couldn't do it. The first sanctuary simply could not do it. The temple on earth could do a lot of things, but it could not do that. It couldn't cleanse the what? Couldn't cleanse the conscience. See, if all we had was the everyday, if all we had was the every, everyday, that is the problem is, in fact, maybe that is the problem, is that we are here every day, amen? We have to live. How many here believe in God? How many here believe what we're supposed to believe at Christians? We all do, right? But yet we have to wake up every morning and live here every day. We live with what? We lived with uh, how successful we were. We lived with how unsuccessful we were. We lived that, that, that we are all sinners and fall short of what? fall short of God's glory, so we've got that on our minds, we've got that on our consciences, and we have to live every day. And we live, we eat, we drink, we worship, but there's this thing that's nagging us. 
And if you wanna go back to the illustration of the sanctuary itself, the thing that's, that's, that's bugging us, our conscience kind of, if you will, keeps our sin alive, doesn't it? Back in the old days, your sin went transferred from you when you pronounced your sin upon the sacrifice. The sacrifice's blood was the dump truck that took your sin and dumped it into the sanctuary. But what? It is still there, isn't it? It's there. What does it need? It needs cleansing, doesn't it? And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying, is that the first sanctuary wasn't designed for that. Couldn't do it. It fell short of that. It could do a lot of things. It could do a lot of things every day for the everyday sinner, which is who? All of us. It could do a lot of things, but one thing it could not do was cleanse our consciousness. We're waiting for cleansing. We need cleansing or purifying, if you will. Remember what 1 John 1.9 says. It, it, it doesn't just say forgiveness of sins, does it? Take a look at 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So take a look. This is what this high priest can do that the earthly high priest could not do. The earthly high priest could take your sin from you put it into the sanctuary and maybe even cleanse the earthly sanctuary on the day of atonement. But are you really cleansed of all unrighteousness? The question I ask is when you forgive your sin, when you ask for forgiveness for your sin, whatever it is, no matter what's happened, do you feel forgiven? Should we? Actually, we should, shouldn't we? But something happens, right? Something happens from our knees to the street. Something happens from the knees to the car, from living every day, from worshiping every day, from praying every day. There is some sort of nagging feeling sometimes that we have not been what? That we haven't been cleansed. Because our problem is, is that our sins also have earthly consequences, don't they? So sometimes our sins may hurt someone else. It may cause actual physical damage. It will cause emotional damage. And sometimes that's waiting for us, right? We come out of our closet, we've asked for forgiveness, we believe we've been cleansed of all unrighteousness, but the consequences are still waiting for us, isn't it? By the way, does God know that when he wrote 1 John 1, 9? He did. But what he's trying to tell us is, hey, if you believe in this high priest, you have been cleansed. It has been forgotten. Now, does that allow you to ignore the consequences that it caused out here? No, we may have to spend our entire lives trying to fix the consequences outside here. But no matter how much we struggle doing it here, it's already been done in heaven. Isn't that what he's saying? This is how our conscience becomes cleansed. When we begin to live this, don't just believe you've been forgiven, but believe you've been cleansed. I always heard what it said was that anybody here ever committed the same sin twice? You're laughing. You've all done that, really? So you go back to God the second time. Go back to God after you've committed again and you say, Forgive me, Lord, I, I, I blew it, I, I, I fell again, I did it again. God will actually look you in the eye and say, you did what again? 
What are you talking about? When did you do this? Today? Well, what are you talking about? The other one I did yesterday. Yesterday's gone, sweet Jesus. At least as far as this is concerned. But our conscience also has to live where? We have to live here. We have to live here. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, we, we can't abdicate our responsibility because we've been forgiven by God. We may have a debt to pay, and that's okay. And by the way, the only way that we may be able to get through that is to be assured that we've been cleansed. To be assured that we've been purified. Cleansing. So cleansing. See, at atonement, the high priest actually goes all the way in and is cleansed. And we're, we're reminded again. Take a look at verse 11, uh, back, in, back in chapter 9 of Hebrews. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, not of creation. So now what we're talking about. We're not talking about what the earthly one was limited to. We're talking about what the actual one is unlimited to. Amen? The perfect tent. Good. Greater. Not made with hands. Perfect. And what makes this atonement one that can cleanse? What is it about that one? What is it about that high priest going into that sanctuary and having it completely cleansed? What does that mean to us? What makes that something that could cleanse? Well, verse 12 says it's because he entered only what? Only once, only once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with, its own, with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. There's two things of why that cleansing would cleanse us completely. There are two things. One is he only has to do it once. See, the old high priest, how often did he have to do it? At least once a year, Right? which means that there were more sins to be cleansed. By the way, they were his too. On the Day of Atonement, after offering the daily sacrifice, after choosing the, 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 between the, what would, who would be the sin offering between the two goats, he has to sacrifice a bull. Who? For him and his family. He has to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. See, but this one, this high priest, he entered into the high priest, he entered into the sanctuary in heaven with his own blood, and he only had to do it once. So number one, what makes this different is that he only does it once, has to do it once. That's how effective it is, if you will. And then number two, it's the source of blood. It's his own blood. And what makes his special by comparison? Well, look at verse 13. It says, For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who've been defiled so that their flesh is purified, if, if you will, if, and the purification offering that he's talking about is not the day of atonement. It's this, it's this strange purification offering. It only occurs once. It occurs in Numbers 19. And it tells of this involving a red heifer. Has anybody ever heard of the red heifer before? A couple people. 
A couple of people. I tell you, somewhere in the in the 90s, about the mid 90s, peop, uh, some people, not people, not all people, but some members went nuts about the red heifer. They wrote books, they wrote pamphlets. I know what all about the red heifer is. Guess what? No one knows about this. It is so mysterious. It only happens once. Even the language surrounding it is mysterious. What was supposed to happen? And it doesn't say how often it was supposed to happen. We don't know if it happened once the temple was built. We only know that it happened this once in Numbers 19. They were supposed to bring a red heifer. Not brown, not black, a red heifer, if you will, this red heifer. And it was supposed to be completely sacrificed to the Lord. It was, it was slaughtered and it was completely burned. Completely burned before the Lord. And then in, in, in Numbers 19, at the, end of, uh, at the end of all of this sacrificing and burning, verse 6 in chapter 19 says, The priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, crimson material, and throw them into the fire in which the heifer is burning. Scarlet material. And this is what I'm saying. It's so mysterious. We don't know how often this happened. It could have only happened this once. That's all. It could have only happen this once. And then the ashes were to be taken outside the camp, and then there's this cryptic verse as to what it was for. Verse nine says, now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, deposit it outside the camp in a clean place, and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification for sin. That's a literal translation of it. Keep it as what? wait a minute, it's not water, it's what? It's ashes. So people have speculated. Did they take those ashes and mix it in water that was used for purification? Nobody knows. There's no instructions. That's why this red heifer thing is so mysterious. And believe me, I think that's why God did it this way. He did it on purpose. He didn't want us figuring it out. Because then we would think that it's the red heifer that purifies us. Whenever there's something that we can't quite figure out with the earthly sanctuary and the earthly methods, if you will, I think God did it on purpose, don't you? I mean, we've already had a habit of worshiping things we shouldn't be worshiping. So I like the mystery. I like not being able to put my finger on it. But all I know is this, is that it was a purification offering. And it didn't just involve ashes. It involved scarlet or crimson material, if you will. Scarlet, wool, is what the New Testament says. It just says material in the Old Testament. Cedar wood and hyssop. And water, right? And blood. But all it says of the ashes is that they're just kept in a clean place. Numbers eight has a purification ceremony with water, but it's only for the Levites. This red heifer ceremony was supposed to be for all the people of Israel. Like I said, every time you think you might have it figured out, we really don't know what it was. We don't know what it was. But the mystery is kind of solved for at least the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews doesn't care either. All he did was talk about the ashes. Numbers says that the ashes was uh, kept as, in a clean place as water. That's all he needed to know that it's associated somehow with purification. 
Look at verse 14 back in Hebrews 9. How much more then if the blood of bulls, I gotta read verse, uh, go back to the other verse first. So, but if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who've been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more, he says, will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? The author of Hebrews doesn't care what the red heifer is, amen? The author of Hebrews only uses the comparison of the earthly purification of the red heifer and the water and the blood of the day of atonement and all of that, only uses that in comparison to the blood of Christ. Good, better, most perfect, amen? See, sinners back then and now, so defiled that they were, if they could have just a little faith that animal blood and some, and some heifer ashes could purify them, then how much more, how much more do believers in Christ believe they've been purified if they would simply have a little faith? See, this is the glory of the second covenant. This is the glory of the new covenant. Verse 15 says, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance because a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. See, and here, even in modern times, we can take the word covenant and we can actually give it a legal meaning too. When is a covenant Actually, uh, what kind of covenant, what kind of agreement, what kind of legal agreement has to do with inheritance? A what? A will, okay, which you could translate this as will. A covenant is simply an agreement between two parties. So you could be talking about a will because a will is agreement between two parties, right? The person who is deceased and whoever the inheritors are, amen? Are you with me? So he says this, he said, that, that's what he's saying is that even legally this works out. Even on earth legally, even with the first death, this works out. When is a will enforced? When the guy who made it, or gal, what? Dies. So said, it works, doesn't it? Verse 16 says, where a will is involved, where a covenant or a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes away only, uh, takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who's alive who's made it. He said, <laughs> Jesus' sacrifice and high priesthood is so perfect, it even works out in human legal terms. Which means his covenant does not take effect until he what? Did he do that? Then guess what? You and I have already inherited. The covenant has, has, has been uh, engaged. It, it takes effect. And how do we know? It's because of that blood again. It's because of that blood. Verse 18 says, hence, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without what? Without blood. See, if somebody loses their blood, they what? They die. He lost his blood, he died. Once he did, the covenant then took effect. The new covenant took effect. And it took effect because of his own sacrifice, because of his own blood, and because of his own priesthood.
Verse 19 says, for when every commandment had been told all the people by Moses in accordance with the law, he took the, the blood of calves and goats with water and what? Scarlet wool and hyssop. What's the author of Hebrews talking about? Talking about any offering that has to do with what? Purification. Not forgiveness, but what? Purification. And they took all that and he sprinkled it with the scroll itself on all the people. The actually picture is that if Moses is actually holding a scroll, if he's actually got the scroll, in other words, he's holding a Torah scroll, he actually, some say that he actually dipped it into the blood and the water and he flung it over all of them. That's what the author of Hebrews says. But he's calling up a story from uh, Exodus 24, and in verse eight, it says this, it says, Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you in accordance with all these words. So Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is the one that adds the reference to the heifer ceremony because it's not in this story here. He says it was mixed with water, but not so here. And he said it was used scarlet wool and hyssop and it doesn't say that here. What the author of Hebrews is, is the author of Hebrews has taken all of the purification offerings and he's put them together in order to be able for us to come to the conclusions that we come to about this high priest. Scarlet, scarlet's everywhere in the temple. It is probably the main color in all the walls in the temple. It's in the curtains, it's in the walls, it's in the veil. It's, it's in the, the ephod of the high priest. But when you look up scarlet in the Old Testament, it begins with a thread. Do you remember the twins that were born? That, that, that a hand shoots out first and the, and the midwife puts a scarlet thread on his hand and it goes back in, right? And then his brother happens to come out first because they were always fighting. That's the very first reference to scarlet. Hyssop, anybody know what a hyssop plant is? I'm not real good with plants, but I look at pictures of hyssop and I think it's called a bottle brush. It's purple, it's very pretty, it's tubular, okay? Has all kinds of little, uh, little, little things on it. It actually, it actually looks like a duster. Okay, it looks, it looks like you could, but it's probably full of pollen. It probably causes more dust than anything else. But, but hyssop is used, is used only twice in the sanctuary system. The first time that it's used, it's actually used during Passover. You were supposed to use hyssop to paint the blood on your doorpost. And for the red heifer offering, hyssop is used also. But I wanna tell you that the only time that blood, water, hyssop, and scarlet ever come together are for these two purification offerings in the entire sanctuary system. So think of what our author of Hebrews is going for. Why none of the other offerings can purify the conscience? Because it's only these offerings that can actually pronounce somebody clean. Not just forgiven, but clean. Even the ancient, who only had the earthly sanctuary, when these things came together, when water, blood, hyssop, and scarlet material, whatever it may be, came together, it meant that it was being put together in order for the sinner not just to be forgiven, but to be purified after they'd been forgiven. There are only three. And by the way, it doesn't happen 
inside the holy place. It happens inside the most holy place and, thank God, outside the camp. The one thing about that red heifer ceremony is that it happens outside the camp because it's not just for the priests, it's for the people. That's what's beautiful about it. It's the only purification offering since Exodus 24 that has been done for all the people, not just the priests. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, our high priest, he's that, he's all of that. He's, he's, he's the Passover sacrifice. He's the blood of the Passover sacrifice. He's the cleansing in the water. He's the cleansing in the red heifer. He is good, better, most perfect. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship what? The living God. His death, his blood, all the sacrifices. Passover, I said it, red heifer, bulls and goats, the day of atonement. How much more, he says, how much more than all of that? How much more than all of that? With what we got left, there's one, one particular time where all of these come together, one particular uh, brand, if you will, of purification offering. Like I said, there's only three, I think three, but then there's this one time where hyssop, scarlet, blood, and water all come together. I've been sharing in my newsletter blog that Jesus has this mysterious word attributed to him that no other son of man mentioned in the Bible has. And I did a sermon series on it like 75 years ago is what it feels like. It, it was here and it was in 2017, but it feels like it was 75 years ago and nobody remembers it. So. But there's this Greek word that's attributed to Jesus that is not tr attributed to anyone else. And it refers to his guts. And when it's used in its, in its verb form, this Greek word, it, it, it's used where it says, and Jesus had compassion for them. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, mostly in an adjective form, okay, but also in a verb form. And it only refers to Jesus, it never refers to anybody else. And I think the reason that they used the word guts was because to the ancient mind, looking inside a body, that was mysterious. And this thing that Jesus has for other people that, that we normally don't have is mysterious to all the Bible writers, and that's why they use this word. Like I said, 12 times it's used. So literally, he has guts for these people. It comes from within. The Bible writer can't explain it. It's mysterious. It's a neat sounding word too. Splank needs oh my. Sounds like guts, doesn't it? Splank needs oh my. But Jesus has it and no one else does. And in the last week of the newsletter, I, he has it for people that we normally don't have it for. In the, in the, in the first one, I, I, I noticed that he has compassion for crowds. There's nobody here that has compassion for a crowd. Don't tell me that you do. Crowds don't, don't we don't, we don't, we look at a crowd and we see what? We see irritation is what we look at. We see inconvenience. And sometimes we see things even worse, right? 
Because crowds are hard to empathize with. They're hard to sympathize with, especially when crowd mentality takes over. Or especially if you're at an away game. I don't have sympathy for a cardinal crowd. No, 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 no. Not when I'm sitting in the middle. You with me? Jesus could though. Jesus could sit there and look around and actually have empathy, have compassion, to be moved by the crowd. So there's one other person also that he had empathy for, but certainly nobody, especially no believer in Israel, had empathy for. Do you mind if I read from this week's newsletter? Do you mind if I read from the blog? The one, the one that he has empathy for that nobody, even a believer did in his day, was a leper. Now again, when the Bible refers to leprosy, we're making a lot of assumptions here. All we're making is that there was a disease at one time that appeared to be like leprosy of what we have. It's not exact, we don't know, but we do have this information. Does everybody know what leprosy is? It's caused by two different bacteria, and the bacteria happen where? Do they happen on the skin? No. They actually attack the nerve endings. Our pain receptors is what it attacks. When the lesions of a leper begin to happen on, on the surface of the skin, that bacteria has been incubating anywhere from two to seven years. And by the time that, it, that, it's, that you see it on the skin, by the time that it's happened, it has damaged the nerve so much that literally the person who has it feels no pain. Doesn't feel any pain. So today, of course, leprosy can be cured if it's caught early, if you're tested for. But in Jesus' day, there was only one thing that can be done. What did the Bible say you had to do for an afflicted person who had leprosy? They had to be what? They had to be isolated to keep it from spreading. And we can see that when Jesus meets this leper, he's, they, they've accomplished that. Because when you hear about this leper in Mark 1, it, by verse 40, Jesus has healed and cured all kinds of people. And the one thing that all of those other people had in common was number one, uh, it was Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever, it was people with various sicknesses, and it was people who were possessed with demons. Number one is, those were people with afflictions, but lepers actually became what they were. He's the only one referred to by his disease. And all the others had somebody bring them to Jesus. The leper shows up at the end of Mark by himself, alone, asking for Jesus himself. And he's not referred to somebody afflicted with leprosy. He's actually called a leper. So you can see that everybody has certainly done that. They've isolated him, haven't they? So we see that Jesus is moved with compassion then for this leper because as with other times, no one else is. And why not? Well, the simplest explanation is because they were good Bible students. They were very good Bible students. They read their Bibles. They may have had this part memorized. The law says the person who has the leprous disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head be disheveled, he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, and he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease, he is unclean. He shall live alone, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
The law commands their isolation and then holds them responsible for notifying others that he's unclean. There isn't another disease like that described in the Bible. So even if another son or daughter of Abraham wanted to reach out and touch them or do anything for them or with them, they were forbidden to by the law, by God's word. Now I guess you could argue it was for their own good. Is leprosy contagious? Yes, it is. But guess what? It's only contracted by three to 5% of those exposed and it can't be just casual contact. Three to 5%, I can name you a whole bunch of diseases that are a whole lot more contagious than that. Father Damien, the legendary 19th century priest who ran a leper colony in Hawaii, contracted it after 16 years of sharing poi with them, eating out of their same bowls, sharing their pipes, dressing their ulcers, making their coffins, burying them. It took 16 years for Father Damien to get it. So we might, you know, we might cut God and, and Israel some slack, say, well, it is contagious. Well, no, it's not that contagious. But the law actually goes further. Command the Israelites to put out of the camp everyone who is leprous. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp. They must not defile their camp where I dwell among them. Oh, I get it now. We put them outside the camp because God is in the camp. We must put them out because they're unclean and God is clean. God, God must not want to be defiled. I get it now. God hates lepers. This I know because the Bible tells me so. We know that by Jesus' day, leprosy had literally been called the stroke for hundreds of years. Someone afflicted were seen as literally stroked by the finger of God himself. It was a perpetual uncleanness and only God could do that. So naturally, if God hates your uncleanness so much that he would make you an outcast, then I, as a believer in God, I can too. If God doesn't like you, why do I have to like you? And one thing I didn't notice was in the newsletter, all of that is in quotes. And quote and italics is usually the international sarcasm font. Do you sense my sarcasm right now? See, religious people with no guts, no compassion, religious people with no guts tend to use afflicted people as object lessons of God's care or lack of it. So enter the one human with guts. Enter the one son of man with compassion who looks past the word on the page, looks past the word in stone and reaches out and touches the leper himself. Moved with compassion, he says. See, leprosy is a fit object lesson, but it's the disease that's the object lesson, not the person who has it. It's the disease. 
It's a fit object lesson for sin. The bacteria does its damage of the pain nerves. It deadens them. Lepers feel no pain. Afflictions that you and I would be alerted to early because of pain goes unchecked by lepers until the damage is extensive, rampant, and terminal. Leprosy was used as an object lesson by God to show what sin does to human beings. It deadens us. And the proof is all of the believers in God around him. With me? That's what it did to you and me. That's what sin does to you and me. See, but after Jesus cleanses this man, he directs him, he commands him to do, go do something, which is, to me, just ties in so wonderfully with the main point being this high priest. He says, say that you see not, say nothing to anyone. Can you imagine being cleansed of this, this terminal, horrible thing on the spot by the touch of Christ himself and then to have him say, don't say anything to anyone? But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your, guess what? Cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. The first time I ever heard this story put together, Don Pate put this whole story together. You know how he'd, he, he told stories in the narrative. He gave them names, he gave them families. And I remember Natan, I remember Natan the Tanner was this, was this leper that, that asked Jesus for, for this cleansing. And, and, and what I love about it is when you pick it up here, when Jesus sends him to the priest, he goes and, and uh, Pastor Pate had Natan actually go look for the priest who pronounced him unclean. That's the guy I want. I want to look for that priest. Because I, I'm, I'm selling him short, the priest actually was, was lovely. The priest had a heart. He had compassion. He didn't want to pronounce this on him. And I think actually Natan wants to reward him with that. But he goes, he just looks for one. And guess what? He finds him. He happens to be on duty that day. There he is. And he comes up and he says, he says excuse me, can I talk to you? And the priest looks at him and he goes, wow, man, you look familiar. Because it's been years. He goes, you do look familiar. And he goes, I, I, I should be. I'm Natan, son of Moshe, Tanner of Modin. And the priest goes, no, you're not. That guy's dead or close to it. I pronounced him unclean. I saw it. No, but I am. And Natan takes off his headdress, and he, and he opens himself up to him, and he goes, my goodness, you are, you're clean. And, and, and he doesn't know what to do. He's, he's short-circuited. You know why? Because no one's ever seen this before. This has not happened, not since Elisha. It's been a thousand years. So he knows there's something he's supposed to do. He gets his computer out, and he has to look up Leviticus 14. He has to look up this cleansing ceremony. By the way, Jesus did not heal the lepers. He cleansed them. Because sin isn't disease that needs healing. Sin is a disease that needs cleansing. So he's got to look in his computer at Leviticus 14, but nobody, nobody has this memorized because no one's ever done it. And he says, okay, okay, so you're Natan. Yes, I am, and you're clean. Yeah, oh, man. Um, you go, go. You got to get yourself two sparrows, two common, ordinary birds. Go out into the marketplace. 
And, and, and as, he, as he sends him away, a fellow priest walks by and he goes, you told that man to go get two sparrows. The only, the only ceremony I can think of that would be the cleansing of the leper ceremony. And the guy says, yeah, we're stuck with one. He goes, are you kidding me? We're gonna see a cleansing of a leper ceremony here, now? You know, and, and it spreads through the temple like wildfire. Like I said, when's the last time this happened? Elisha? And in fact, there is somebody who leans over and he goes, I bet I know how it happened. What's that? I bet it's that. No, shh. Can't talk about him here. So by the time the man gets back with the little sparrows, there's a crowd. But you also notice what the priest had to go get. He had to get a sprig of hyssop, a scarlet thread, a clay bowl. And he takes the bowl and he hands it to Natan and he says, go down to the Kidron. You need living water. You need water that flows, water that breathes. Go down and get living water. And so now he brings it back. So you have the hyssop. You have the sprig of hyssop. You have the, the, the uh, scarlet thread. You have the bowl and the water. Guess the only thing that you're missing? The blood. Because what he instructs them next is, okay, Natan, I need you to take one of those birds, hold it in your hand, hold it over the bowl, put your thumb against its neck, and grind off its head. So you could, you could remain detached from the whole ceremony if you used a knife, right? No, you can't remain detached when you actually have to use your hands to wring the life out of it. And it's messy, it's nasty, the blood flows into the water and as soon as the blood hits the water, the priest takes the hyssop and he begins to turn it around and swirl it around and to mix it up. And when he does, he takes it out and he takes it and he sprinkles Natan with it seven times. He said, now take the other bird I remember Pastor Pate saying, the first time I came in contact with that, I thought, oh, no, not the other bird. Why? Why, Why the other bird? He said, take the other bird and dip it into the bowl. So he takes the bird and he dips it into the bowl. And he goes, now go out to the end of the court and set him free. So he takes it and he walks out. And of course, he's all covered in blood and water and the Bird's not ready to fly when he's covered in water. So, so maybe the Israeli sun is, you know, he's got to wait there for a second, you know, for it to dry off. And as soon as it does, finally he just flies away. And of course the story ends with him being able to go home. Ceremony takes eight days. There's shaving, there's more water, there's more blood. The next time that he has blood, it's mixed with oil. And it's put on his earlobe and on his thumb and on his big toe. Look at all this symbolism coming together, amen? And he gets home, and it's been years, and he left his little boys who are now men working in the field that he could barely recognize. But he gets up, he gets up to his doorpost, and there's his mezuzah, and he puts his head against his doorpost, and he can hear this voice, Hero Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. Shema Yitzrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai, 
אחד. Thank you for holding on with me. Happy Sabbath, everybody.